Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Well, thank you for that very kind introduction. And thank you to the New York um, Abu Dhabi Institute for inviting me to speak again. It's always a pleasure to come to uh, NYU. Uh, okay, that's... Um, archaeology is not about one person. I'm just here one person on the stage, but we're going to take a journey um, this evening from a period of about 7,000 to 8,000 years ago. And archaeology is always a team effort. And actually, currently in the Marawa project, we have, I think, a total of, I think it's 27 people involved in the project. So archaeology is not just one Indiana Jones going and digging something up. It's quite a different kind of exercise, and it involves a lot of effort over, over many years of time. And here you see a list of some of our internal um, staff. Some of them are here in the room here. So if there are any difficult questions at the end, I'll divert some of those to some of them. Uh, we also have some external archaeologists who are professional archaeologists, many of whom have worked in the Gulf for 20 years or more. And we have a number of specialists, and you'll notice we have connections uh, institutional connections, helping us with the research, with the Natural History Museum in Paris, with um, um, INRAP, the Rescue Archaeology Service, with uh, other people specialized in photography, illustrations, archaeobotany, animal bones, fish bones. So studying archaeological material, what my aim tonight, so the learning outcomes of tonight really, is for you to have a better idea what life was like between 7,000 and 8,000 years ago here. So first of all, where is Marawa Island? Well, the national newspaper kind of got it wrong. They said 160 kilometers east of Abu Dhabi, which would have confused some people because it's 100 kilometers uh, to the west of Abu Dhabi. So it's where this red dot is. And uh, it's interesting, journalists sometimes uh, uh, don't, don't check their facts, shall we say. So... Uh, um, Anyway, Marawa is located here, and it's a very um, important and interesting um, area. Um, this is our um, current map of some of the archaeological sites on the island. The archaeological sites are all these red dots, and I'll come in a minute to the history of research. But today, we're going to focus primarily um, on the site MR11. Actually, MR1 and MR11 are two contemporary sites which date to the um, late middle middle and late stone age um, if we look a bit more closely at marawa it has very interesting um, sort of geomorphology actually it's a low-lying island but it's made up actually of three or four um, rocky core areas and you'll note that the archaeological sites as I just showed you are largely concentrated on those particular zones. And in, in between, there's very low-lying sabka and mangroves. Um, it's a beautiful island. Um, I first came to Abu Dhabi in 1994 to work on Sabanias Island, um, and I was part of the team that discovered the Christian church monastery there. Um, and I was lucky enough to have a chance to do a day trip to Marawa in 1994, so I stepped on the island for first time um, there. And, and really saw it's a magical place, as you'll see. Um, it's not just a magical place for its natural beauty, but for, um, for the point of view of um, biodiversity hotspots. This quite nice diagram taken from the Environment Agency annual uh, report um, and the Marawa Marine Protected Areas. You can see it's quite a large area that extends out to a place called Butina, uh, roughly going northwards out from Mirfa area. And this map shows quite nicely the terrestrial protected areas and the marine protected areas. And the bottom diagram I quite like because it kind of summarizes some of the environments here from the mountains to desert to coast to the rich marine resources. And you can see, a, I think, a dugong and nice fish swimming around in the bottom of this. So Marawa was identified very early on as a biodiversity hotspot in Abu Dhabi, and the Abu Dhabi government has sought to protect that area. And we'll come a bit later to, to why that is. So 
What's the history of previous work there? Um, Robert mentions that I worked for this organization called the Abu Dhabi Islands Archaeological Survey. And the first survey, uh, systematic survey of the island was in 1992. And as you can see, lasted a very short period of time, just five, six days with actually six people, including some uh, venerable archaeologists such as Beatrice Dacardi, OBE, who, who died about two years ago, um, aged 104, I think it was. Um, so Beatrice, the, the team was led by Geoffrey King, who's retired now, but was a former professor at School of Oriental African Studies. Now, in those six days, they pretty much just were dumped on the island and then had to walk around uh, finding, surveying the sites. And they made this initial sort of map of the island and gave site numbers. And archaeologists usually start at one end of an island and start giving numbers. So that's why MR1, they started at the western end and worked their way sort of back east. So they identified a number of um, sites. Um, we found a lot more sites since the initial survey. But um, we're going to zoom in now on this MR11 um, area. It's in a very strategic position on the edge of a sort of lime, flat limestone plateau. There's actually a triangular-shaped uh, plateau here. And you'll note that, the, as I said, the Neolithic site is the top left-hand corner. There are other sites here, such as uh, wells, that were used in the uh, recent uh, history and Islamic period. There's Bronze Age and Iron Age hearths, actually hundreds of them down here. There's also a series of burial cairns. So it's a very interesting area where they're using the local uh, geology. Just zooming in on this, the 1992 survey reported an interesting site on this rocky plateau consisting of seven mounds. We did, they didn't know what the date of these mounds were, and in that publication they said question mark prehistoric, or they put pre-Islamic mounds. They were just stone mounds. There was very little visible on the surface of those, and the Mounds are kind of highlighted in uh, pink. We've actually excavated uh, three areas there now. Um, in 2004, uh, this is the original first excavation team. Um, one of the personnel, Richard Cutler, is now a DCT staff member as well. And then there's me in, in red. And we excavated um, what's it called now called Area A, and we excavated one particular um, room of this structure. And it was a very interesting structure. I'll come back to these types of houses later, but you see these beautifully made walls constructed with a sort of double skin of stones, and it's like very, very thick walls. And why are they so thick? We'll come to that in a minute. More recently, um, with the Tourism and Culture Authority and then DCT, we uh, returned since 2016 um, with some of our local archaeologists, Abdullah Al-Kabi, uh, Ahmed Al-Hajj, and this is some of the team who would normally work in, in Alain. And, uh, and this is Abdullah Al-Kabi um, um, planning uh, the site. Uh, the excavations from 2016 and then 17 and 18. So our most recent field season was in February, March this year, and we're planning to return in February, March um, next year. So. Um, what is the age of this um, site? Well, um, some of you who have been to Louvre Abu Dhabi may have seen this rather special ceramic vase. This is on display in the Louvre, and you can see some rather special guests here uh, looking at it. The Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Zayed, um, um, our chairman, Mohammed Khalif al-Mubarak. Um, you have uh, uh, Macron, the French president, and Mrs. Macron, and Luc Martinez, the director of the Louvre, here looking at this remarkable um, ceramic, which was found in room one, in that first room that we excavated in 2004. Uh, normally, uh, this type of pottery, Ubaid pottery, is manufactured in, in Iraq, in southern uh, Mesopotamia, and we find trickles of it down the coast of Abu Dhabi. You find Ubaid pottery a little bit in Kuwait, more in Kuwait, less in Saudi Arabia, less in Qatar, and a little bit in the UAE this is actually the most complete vessel that's ever been discovered in the um, southern Gulf to, to date. Um, obeyed pottery is a phenomenon that exists between about 5,500 BC 
and 4000 BC. So purely discovering Ubaid pottery gives you a ballpark figure for dating of the site. Um, we also have interesting artifacts at the site. Um, at Marawa MR1 and MR11, we have a particular type of arrowhead. This is taken from a recent publication from Malaya. Some of you may have been to the Malaya Archaeology uh, Museum, and uh, this is on display on the walls. And this is a kind of typology of different types of arrowheads through time. If you can see on the left here, this is 8,000, 7,000, 6,000 uh, years ago and so on. These early types of points, we call them facade points. But then what we find in uh, Marawa are these, especially these points, these trihedral points, which uh, date to the sort of middle to late uh, Neolithic. Um, and then the, the sort of very late Neolithic ones tend to be these notched and tanged arrowheads. So again, archaeologists, we use pottery, we use uh, typology of artifacts. These trihedrals are really beautiful. These are some of the recent illustrations we've had prepared uh, by Ellen David, who's been helping us. Um, the, they're called trihedral. You can see that it's kind of triangular in cross-section when you look at it, and they're very beautifully made, uh, pressure flaked. Um, if one of these, um, you fired one of these, it's a fairly dangerous uh, projectile point uh, with good um, uh, penetrating powers, as it were. Now, we also have, of course, from the excavation, we try to collect charcoal samples for radiocarbon dating, and radiocarbon dating helps us to get the ballpark figure as well. So you'll see on here that the these are, we, I haven't had time to update it with the additional radiocarbon dates we've got, but you'll see the settlement is occupied from about um, um, 6,500 years ago back to nearly 8,000 years ago. So it's, uh, it's not necessarily totally continuous occupation, but you can see that there's at least a sort of 1,000 years of, of occupation because all these are the probability curves of the radiocarbon. They overlap, so it means that the, uh, there's people around in this time. So... So dating, we can use radiocarbon dating, we can use pottery, we can use the typology of some of the artifacts to help us with that. Now, what about the environment? Um, I think many of you are familiar with uh, that we have an understanding now of climate history, especially using things like ice cores. And this graph shows a temperature difference from the present time, something we've been concerned about, very hot summers. Uh, here now, and also it shows CO2 concentrations, and this shows, this is time here, so 50,000, 100,000. So these periods here are warmer and wetter, and then colder and drier, where it goes down. And of course, the, this is um, about 20,000 years ago, uh, 20 to 10, you have the end of the last ice age, and then you have a sort of warming phase, and then the recent Holocene, we're in this sort of ballpark here. Now, why do I mention this? Because at this time, the uh, Neolithic period between approximately 10,000, 9,000 years ago down to 6,000 years ago, the climate is, is warmer, uh, wetter, uh, there's more vegetation around. We have evidence of lakes in Saudi Arabia, in the empty quarter, in the UAE. So when you look at the island today, you have to imagine something slightly uh, greener, slightly wetter, slightly more pleasant uh, to, to live in. Now, another main factor for understanding the setting of this site is sea level change. Now, when you have the end of the last ice age, you have the melting of a lot of polar ice, and you have globally a sea level increase of more than 120 uh, meters. And what happens is that the gulf, which is previously... Um, actually a, just a river basin, a continuation of Tigris-Euphrates. Gradually, there's an in incursion um, in here. And these incursions go in sort of stages, you know, uh, coming into the, the Gulf actually has a western basin and a central basin. And then these, these are originally lakes as part of the river system going out. But this marine incursion fills up the Gulf. And the interesting thing is by about... 6,000 BC, the sea level actually has filled up even slightly higher than today. Can, uh, estimates are that it's about two meters higher than the present time. And 6,000 BC, around 8,000 years ago, is where we suddenly have the appearance of these settlements. So people came, and of course, 
The impact of having suddenly a sea in this area meant that, of course, if you had boats and things, you could have more readily contact with uh, distances. And um, there was a, I think the, I remember the archaeologist, Italian archaeologist, the late Maurizio Tozzi, uh, once said, you know, the, the sea was the sort of prehistoric highway helping, you know, connect people. Because, of course, from here we have connections to Mesopotamia, but also we have connections to sort of Indus Valley and stuff like this. So suddenly um, um, the, the flood, as it, as it was in, in the Gulf, suddenly gives new possibilities for sailors to navigate. This is shown in this diagram. This is a rather old diagram now, but I quite like it because it shows that there's always, there's always this change in climate over a big period of time, but there's also changes in sea level. So our sites, this is actually putting together different radiocarbon dates from Oman, actually from, we did this for Kuwait, actually this is a site that I worked on in Kuwait, where we were plotting the probability uh, um, curves of the radiocarbon, and you'll see suddenly you have sites appearing after around 6,000 BC, so around 8,000 years ago, this is the Gulf, and this is sea level height, so that's one meter above present, and so it's nearly two meters above the present day, and notice that the archaeology uh, concentrates uh, in, in some of these uh, particular oscillations. And through the Bronze Age and Iron Age, even there's some changes in this which affects humans living on the coast. Now, um, it's been, I mentioned about these ancient lakes and things. This is a rather dramatic reconstruction. It's from Bahrain, actually, from the National Museum in Bahrain. And I think it was done shortly after the Tarzan movie, uh, came, came out. Um, it's quite old, this picture. I took it in the, one of the, the later Tarzan uh, movies because um, um, the guy looks a bit more Tarzan-like. But, but some of the things are, are, are correct. I mean, uh, people were hunting, yes, oryx and gazelle and hares. But what's wrong in this picture is that these people were pastoral nomads, they had domestic um, animals, they had uh, cattle, they had sheep and goat. And this is rather portraying the sort of primitive savage with the sort of loincloth kind of thing. But you see uh, one of the arrowheads and uh, you see some of the uh, uh, technology, certainly bows and arrows, you know, existed. And certainly they uh, thought that eating uh, zub lizards were tasty snacks um, um, in, in that time, as well as in the more recent uh, um, uh, Bedouin desert history. But as I said, this picture is, is, is wrong. This is supposed to be Jebel Dukan, the small mountain in the middle of Bahrain. And it's partly right. I mean, but, but like I said, it's also a lot wrong. And I think people probably wore a lot more clothes than that. Um, and, uh, uh, the, and as I said, and what's missing is domestic animals and houses, as we'll see from, from Marawa. So one of the impacts of our research really is showing new light on really how, how people lived. So what kind of structures did they build and, and live in at the site? Well, this is, um, you remember at the beginning, I showed you a, a sort of picture, a sort of map with the seven mounds that were reported in 1992. Um, we've now made a more detailed um, topographic map, and on here it it's clear that this site located on this stony plateau here, um, these contours, this is about um, five meters above sea level, six meters, seven meters. So it's at about eight meters above sea level here. And we've so far got three excavation areas, area A, area B, and area C. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So the sort of seven mounds that were mentioned originally in the first publication. But you'll notice how the it's in a strategic position and the, the land drops off dramatically here. And you can imagine with higher sea level heights, the sea came quite close to this site. And it's in a very strategic, it's like a corner of the southwest uh, corner of that plateau. So area A. So I showed you that picture at the beginning of room one in 2004. That's what we excavated in 2004. So the pot, the obeyed, Ceramic that's on display in the Louvre was found here. We also found um, a human a burial here. I'll come to that in a minute. So this initial room, uh, we uh, excavated it, um, and the, actually excavations began a little bit in 2003, but it wasn't until 2004 that we 
demonstrated with radiocarbon dating with finds. And as you can see, there's a doorway in and out here. There's a kind of courtyard area here. This white rock that you see is the natural bedrock. So we've excavated everything down to the natural rock surface. So they, the people selected this particular place because it was a great place. They had building material around there. They had water nearby. You should, you, I showed you that map with wells nearby. Um, and it was a great place to build because they had local stone material they could use. And this is actually just the natural bedrock um, um, showing through here. And they, they literally built the houses directly up on that. And they're very, very finely made. We still have a lot of questions about these buildings. Archaeology never finds all the answers. We, you excavate and you have more questions. We found an external hearth here. Um, we, um, we still have areas that are not excavated around here. We have these curious kind of buttresses. We don't quite know um, um, what they are. But the important thing here actually is, is where north is this direction. So these kind of external courtyards are on the southern side of the house. So in other words, on the sheltered side from the prevailing wind. So it makes sense if you're cooking and doing different activities, maybe these buttresses are to support some kind of uh, um, veranda or external uh, shelter attached onto the houses, but we still don't know. Now, interesting thing about this, this is the one of the most complete houses of this period excavated anywhere in the Gulf. We don't have direct parallels for this. And it's fascinating to see how people use these houses. You see there's a door here. Uh, there's a doorway through to here. So you can go into this room and this room. This room, you can only access it by going outside. And then there's a doorway through here and through here. And I'll, we'll come back to this room, why it's a bit different from the other uh, two rooms uh, later. Um, just zooming in on what it looks like when you're excavating these sites, you have to move tons and tons of stones and it's because it's just like a big stone mound from collapsed and you gradually have to remove the stones. And you see something interesting here. There's quite a lot of big slabs that are thin and they're sticking sort of sideways like this, like they've collapsed and tipped down from something higher up because we were always wondering about why the walls are so wide and some of these stones look like they were higher up in the structure and have just collapsed and tipped down inside. So we're looking here at room two and then room three before we'd fully exposed it. So it's a bit clearer at this end, and it's quite interesting that the divide is roughly where the entrance is. So maybe there's a different functions at the different halves of the um, room. This is what it looks like a bit closer up. It's quite hard as you do the excavation because we have to move tons and tons of stones. And, of course, we have to carefully sieve everything. There's very small finds and things. Um, area B was excavated also in the early days in 2003 and 2004 um, and consists of a, a small house at the end of the mound that is now Area C. And, again, there's a doorway and, again, a substantial wall going around. Note that the wall is nearly standing to it's 80, 90 centimetres high. So this is remarkable finding standing architecture of this early date still uh, standing. Area C, this is from the latest season of excavation, um, February to March this year. And the interesting thing is we've identified something a bit different to Area A. You remember Area A is a sort of tripartite arrangement, three rooms with the buttresses here, we thought, oh, we're going to find the same sort of thing. And as we started doing the excavation, we found a whole series of rooms. So there's what we call room four. So we, the area A, we numbered the rooms, one, two, three, and then we continued numbering here. So it's room four, room five, room six here, seven. Seven is actually quite big. You can see the retaining walls of it. And there's also some curious kind of paved areas here. Um, room eight is over here, self-contained. So you see it's kind of some of the rooms are kind of organically kind of joined on to a large structure. But we have a lot of questions here. This is our main target area for next um, February to March. We'll be digging here and it's going to be a quite exciting season because we're going to be excavating the fills of some of these rooms. So far, we've completed the excavation of room five down to bedrock. So this room is, is finished, at least inside, and we have some very interesting finds, and you'll hear more about those, some of those finds in the future. Um, and 
then these other rooms are also turning out to be interesting. This is what was called Area B. So that photograph was taken that way in Area B. Um, there's a kind of small gap in between of natural bedrock and then Mound C is, is over here. Anyway, so we're going to be concentrating on this area the next season. Now, I mentioned human remains. In uh, the room one, the very beginning when we um, were excavating in room one, it was filled with occupation material, with shells, with bones, with different things. We found the amazing Ubaid pot that was broken in pieces. One part of it was across one side of the chamber, and most of the pot was grouped together. Um, we've, we discovered a skeleton, um, and this is very fragmentary part of the skull and at the time this was the um, earliest in known inhabitant of, of Abu Dhabi basically there is a well-known cemetery in, in Sharjah I'll come to and the the police forensic department uh, uh, helped us as a younger version of me and a younger Peter Hellier who I think is here somewhere uh, there um, the interesting thing about this skeleton the you can see the rib cage and part of the bones it was very poorly preserved this is a problem in coastal prehistoric sites, you know, the, the bone preservation is not very good, but we had quite well-preserved pelvis, left and right pelvis, that helped us to tell it's a male skeleton, and the police tried to extract DNA from uh, one of the teeth, and the, the, the DNA preservation is terrible. You don't get DNA preserving because of the thermal heating over 8,000 years and the salts and coastal conditions and things, And but they were able to at least... Um, uh, say, yes, it's a male, and and I was slightly relieved. All the technicians in the police forensic department were female because I thought, well, it could be contamination when processing the sample. But but anyway, I believe the pelvis and the assessment of the, the bones. This is some pictures, so you might recognize the advertising picture. And so that guy got cropped out just for the advertising for the lecture. That's Derek, Derek um, who's an archaeologist who works in... Uh, Birmingham, and this is us lifting the last few bones from the skeleton, but the preservation is nasty. Um, you have much better preservation at other sites. Um, the more recent things, and so we so we initially reported on this in a paper, and we said, you know, Marawa man, and, and of course, when the human bone specialist, uh, Kath McSweeney from Scotland, came to look through the bones, she said, hang on a minute, you've got too many feet bones here for one individual, so we realized that there were a few other bones of other ancestors. And as we started excavating in uh, rooms two and three, we find also traces of some human bones. This is a, a, a human tooth, which is, uh, um, as you see, it's not really developed properly, erupted. We find also some sort of fingers and toe bones just trapped between the rubble. So there's been some later uh, action on, on some of these assemblages. And the, because the bones are so delicate, we have to use um, we use a special type of uh, glue, uh, paraloid uh, in acetone, and we have to uh, impregnate the bones so that something is left. Because if you just try and lift it up, it's just like it just crumbles to to dust. Um, but what we do is record these, and I'll come to that in a minute. And we still have uh, good contacts with uh, Captain Kaduma Al Noemi, who's actually who's done them even done a master's degree in forensic archaeology in the UK at one point about 10 years ago. And we also had support from Khalifa Hospital in that we tried to CT scan the bones because the bone condition is so horrible, but just to try and get the maximum information out on the size and stature. We have quite a good um, um, femur here which and uh, tibia, which at least gives us an, a bit of an idea about the stature of people. But And sadly, the, the skull is not so well preserved um, but we have some teeth and so this research is still ongoing we still need to do more investigations on this um, talking of uh, um, neolithic burials the premier site for neolithic burials in the uae is uh, this site called jebel bohais in in Sharjah. if you visit the Sharjah archaeology museum there are re reconstructions of these inside the museum and this is one of the famous primary burials but they have secondary burials, kind of bone bundles of, of, of bone. They actually, the Bahay site has more than 700 burials, so it's very interesting. These are the um, same kind of uh, people, and the um, Dr. Sabah Jassim, who worked together with uh, um, Professor Hans-Peter Ertman and Margareta Ertman, 
uh, on the site. Um, did a great job, really amazing job, and, and, and presenting, as I said, replicas in the Sharjah Museum, but they studied the animal bones there, and it shows that the people still are hunting, but they have uh, domestic um, animals um, as well. And the interesting thing about these burials is that they show that these burials, although Jebel Bahais is in the interior, it's about 65, 70 kilometers from the sea, the people are very much connected with the sea, and you see the shell uh, jewelry um, around the feet, around the hands, um, um, even probably stitched onto the clothing, showing that people really cared about their appearance in this time. So um, if you go in the Sharjah Museum, again, you will see um, they found more than, I think, 24,000 uh, pieces of beads and things. And this is a remarkable skull. This is on display in a showcase in the Sharjah Museum. And you'll notice a, a kind of pearl just over the, the nose. Maybe they had a pierced nose or something. And then um, you can see the beads going round. Actually, um, these tubular beads, um, we have found one almost identical to these in the Marawa excavations. So, so these people are moving around in this landscape between Jebel Bahais, there's actually a spring there and it's the sort of ancestral burial ground, if you like, but people are moving between the coast and the interior in this time. So what uh, artifacts do we have? Well, I mentioned already the the um, Ubaid um, um, ceramic. Actually, what's interesting and kind of interesting and also puzzling, we found this complete pot in 2004. And I thought when we start excavating more of the site from 2014, I was going to find more and more pots. And still, this is the only um, um, kind of complete pot. We only have found a few uh, pot sherds and things. Just to compare things, normally what you find on Ubaid sites in the Gulf on the coast of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, in uh, um, uh, Ras al-Khaimah and Sharjah, you find small bits of Ubaid pottery, usually like this, fragmentary sherds with the painted stripes and things. But on Dalma Island um, and on Marawar Island, we have something very special, which are these plaster vessel fragments that have also have painted decoration. And you can see certain uh, copying similarities between uh, these things. Now, in our excavations in this um, Area A house, the three-part uh, house, we find actually this is in uh, room three, uh, the one room that I said is a bit different. Um, we actually found lots of traces of kind of consumption, uh, food uh, preparation in this. This is actually the base of a kind of plaster bowl. It's just plain, but it's notice noticeably at one end of the room. We found another one at the other end of the room um, as well. So... Um, we also found um, um, in the same room some of these plaster vessel fragments that clearly um, probably are part of one vessel originally with these remarkable painted stripes. So this is the sort of earliest really um, evidence of, of local decorative uh, um, art, you could say. These are some of the latest drawings that were just finished a week or so ago. And we have some really remarkable pieces. You see here this intricate pattern with uh, dark and uh, red uh, stripes, blocks of things. You can see someone actually drilled a hole in here. When you have find holes in pottery, it's usually a repair thing because they like it so much, they tie it together with bits of string or uh, just to keep the, the vessel alive and going. So it shows that it's a wanted artifact, a desired artifact. Um, and you can see here these plaster vessels, some of them are quite thin and fine and some of them are a bit more chunky. We're currently studying these. Actually, one of my colleagues who's in the audience, Nora Alhamali, is helping us with the study of the plaster vessels from Dalma site. So, so, so a lot of this is work in progress. I'm sure when Nora's finished her study, we'll have a lot more information um, about them. We also, from Marawa, we have some interesting plaster pieces which have impressions of things in them. This one, it actually has what look like plant-like uh, bundles here. So they're plastering something. It may be uh, that uh, we have basketry and things like this and fish traps and things like this. The, to make a plaster vessel, you have to crush up gypsum, uh, mix it um, with water and, and do it in some kind of mold. So they may have used baskets or wooden uh, preforms to help this. And this is just a bit of uh, plaster that's showing these uh, traces. What kind of stone tools do we find? Um, 
At originally, in the ADIAS survey in 1992, they discovered the MR1 site, which is at the westernmost, another stony plateau, uh, actually within sight of MR11. It's about two, two kilometers, two and a half kilometers between these two sites, and a remarkable set of, of arrowheads uh, here, including trihedrals, but also other types. And as you saw, these range in date, and there was one bit of obeyed pot that was found later by myself at MR1. Um, the, um, uh, this is one of the, uh, I showed you this Area B house, this large um, um, sort of spear size element, and you can see how it has shaped for hafting, for being tied onto some kind of spear, and one can imagine these things we use for something. There's Richard Cutler, looking rather pleased. This is from the, uh, again, Area A, from inside room two, and we found another one almost identical to the one found in the other house. So these seem to be standard kit of the people that you have your flint spear, you have your pottery, you have your things. That's one of the arrowheads. We actually have a beautiful range of arrowheads, and these are some of the finest examples ever found, actually, in, in Abu Dhabi, and you could say in, in, in UAE even, and some of these we are going to be go on display um, um, shortly in, uh, I think, in Qas al-Hussan and then in the Zayed National Museum. But this is uh, giving us a, a great insight into this uh, um, technology of this period. Now, the most uh, arrow, whilst arrowheads are nice, it's also very important to understand other tools. The most common type of tool we find is this, which is, we call it a tile knife. It's made from the local tabular flint that's available on the island and along the coast of Abu Dhabi. And you can see how the edge is retouched. This is sideways on the view of here. And this is a perfect cutting tool. You can imagine it being used for butchery, for uh, fish descaling. Here's, uh, I think, me holding a hand, just another, um, another um, a tile knife, and again, you can see how the, the edge is just retouched uh, to give make a sharp edge. And tabular flint is lying around on a lot of these outcrops, and so it's the easiest tool. Pick one up, just sharpen the edge, and you've got an instant tool. We also have some tools that are definitely imported from outside. We started finding in uh, um, some uh, ground stone polished axes. These may be imported from further afield, so they're more... Uh, prestige items. What kind of food did they eat at the site? Well, when we were excavating this room three of the, of the, the three-part house, I mentioned, I showed you already the plaster vessel. There was one at one end and one at the other end. And we found um, in the sort of central part of the house a kind of cache of marine shells showing that they were kind of collecting marine shells and storing them there. Um, we also have bones of um, some small bone fragments of sheep and goat. There's actually some of these are made into bone tools, like a bone awl. We have evidence of gazelle. The question with the gazelle is: Are there gazelle on the island? Are these uh, how you know how did these gazelle? Are they a remnant Holocene population that, with sea level rise, got left on the island, or did were prehistoric people moving gazelle onto the island as a we call it as a walking larder? that they can then hunt when they feel hungry to shoot a few uh, gazelle. Because uh, um, We have lots and lots of fish bones. Um, this, again, in room three at the end near where the plaster bowl is. We were lifting up stones, and you see here, and then the, it's, it's hundreds and thousands of tiny, tiny fish bones, and we're working on these. There's actually a... a, a I'm, he was, his name was on the first slide, Kevin Lidore, who's at the Natural History Museum, is doing a PhD on Neolithic fishing in the Gulf, and so we're working together on the identification of all these. Um, the fish show, we have some large fish that were caught, large sharks, um, um, tuna even, you know, in this early period, and the usual um, hamor, sherry, uh, different things. We have, because we sieve everything on the site, we have a ton of otoliths. These are ear bones inside the fish, and some of these are very distinctive to species. This is hamor, and these ones are all um, um, sea bream. So we can find out what people were eating from these bones. We also have a lot of evidence of, of uh, dugong bones. So here's the dugong, uh, Bagar al-Baha. 
we have ribs and we have um, shoulder blades. So you can imagine that they're butchering the dugongs with their tile knives, carrying lumps of meat up to the site and uh, eating it. And just like today, people like eating barbecued ribs and you're not allowed to eat dugongs today, but it's supposed to have taste quite nice. Uh, up until 1983, dugong meat was on sale in the Abu Dhabi fish market, but now EAD patrols and checks that none of that is happening. Now, a question. In room two, we found something strange. If anyone has any ideas about this, this is actually a dolphin jaw. You can see the little circles, which are for the peg teeth of a dolphin, and it has some strange carving in it. You know, why they did this, what this is for. We did find a trace of one of the human burials nearby. We found a tile knife lying very close by this. You can imagine that flint tile knife being used to score these lines. This is not for butchery. When you find, sometimes when you find dolphin jaws, you find a cut just on the inside where they're removing the tongue of the dolphin as part of the butchery process. But this is something more... I mean, uh, why this? And it's, it's it's a bit strange. It's like the obsession with chevrons and lines on the plaster vessels, and you've got similar kind of lines, chevrons here. So what other decorations did people have? Um, I don't think the Tarzan in the Bahrain National Museum is quite right. Actually, the, the people, as you saw from Jebel Bohais, wore a lot of jewellery. This is just some of the finds from the Marawa site, these tiny, tiny shell beads. Um, we also have uh, evidence of other shells, cowrie shells, being cut and worked into pieces. Uh, we have these beautiful um, um, shell buttons made from pearl oyster. So we know that you know as far back as, as nearly 8,000 years ago that people are engaging with their environment of the lower gulf with the, uh, with the uh, pearl areas and stuff. So... We also have some remarkable jewellery. This is a shark tooth, Requiem shark tooth, and you see it has a hole drilled um, through it. This is quite small. This is a centimetre. So someone went to the effort to drill a hole that's a fairly tiny hole through it with a flint drill because they wanted to make a necklace. We also have sort of black stone uh, bangles, and these are, are common in the Neolithic. You find them in... Um, Yemen and uh, Arabia and eastern Oman and some of these Neolithic um, sites. Um, I thought I would, people always think archaeology is just about digging, but actually we have to do a lot of documentation on the site. Here's uh, Abdul al Kabi doing some digging or at least posing for the photograph for, uh, uh, as you see, is, is almost down on the bedrock here. To be fair to him, this is bedrock here, but there is still a layer here that we're taking taking off. Um, but um, uh, Abdullah always wins the Hat of the Year award, you know, on the uh, excavation usually. I think that's long destroyed, that hat now. He's got a different one. But each archaeological layer that we excavate, we have a special record sheet that records the relationship of the layers, and we have a kind of sketch plan. This is excavating in room three, so it keeps a sort of active record of the excavation. We also have a kind of site log that each layer is, is entered as you excavate a new layer. You give it a number and describe it. We also have a finds register. So each find has a unique number for that particular find on the excavation and the description. The excavation, it's not just digging and shoveling. And when you see something, putting it in a bag, most of our finds come from sieving. So each of these layer numbers, we uh, keep a, a tag on how many buckets are sieved and most of the discoveries are made in the sieve because most of the discoveries are two, three millimeters in size, these tiny uh, beads and, and even the arrowheads. We usually find them more often than not in the sieve because when you're troweling and it's the heat and the dust is blowing around, you don't always see the, the object in the ground. So it's found here. This strange thing behind is our spoil heap. So... <laughs> So as we remove stones from the excavation, we build a kind of walled area. It was confused as TV people, and they come and they say, oh, the site is here. And I went, no, 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 that's not the site. That's the, that's the uh, uh, spoil heap. And we, we wall it to just to stop the sand uh, blowing um, away. But each find is meticulously recorded with the site code, the date, uh, the type. This is the layer number. This is the unique small finds number. It's from the dry sieve. 
greater than four millimeters. And then this is um, Abdullah um, involved in planning. So we do plans of all the different layers as we excavate you know, the site. And this is what one of these field plans look like. I'm showing you the secrets behind the archaeology. Usually archaeologists only show the final plan, but you're seeing some of the actual records from the site. And you'll see on here, uh, this is one of the, the walls. This is the um, room three. And you can see here the, the entranceways starting to emerge. We have to do a plan at each level as we go down. And the, there are coordinates on this plan so it can be stitched together with the rest of the site. We also do profiles at certain points, sections. So as we excavate, we do something that's called a kind of running section. So as we excavate down, we add on other layers. And these are some of the layer numbers here. And I mentioned that some of these top layers have these large stones sticking at funny angles, like it's the roof collapsed in. So all this helps to build the argument and understanding of the site and the layers. Where we find skeletons, we have a special skeleton recording sheet, and we document on it which bones survive. So this is the one that you saw in the uh, police forensic lab with the quite well-preserved femur and uh, uh, tibia. Um, but you see that we've only got bits of the ribs and vertebrae, the top uh, bit of the uh, cranium, and this is part of the record, you know, as you discover things to document the site. Um, we also, of course, use different instruments, uh, GPS, and uh, in this case, dumpy level, checking the levels. So all the levels are recorded on these plans, as well as the things. We also take precarious photographs. Um, we can't always use drones nowadays, and so we have to improvise and use long telescopic fishing rods and different things in order to do aerial photographs. And uh, we also draw the walls. We use modern techniques like photogrammetry, but um, I'm also an old-school archaeologist. I like to have real uh, drawings and things as well, because actually drawing the wall or drawing the plan is an interpretive process. You're understanding the site as you draw uh, the stones, so it's important doing that. So what did the Marawa settlement look like? I'm getting towards the end of the talk now. Um, what did it look like? Well, this is the, the three-part house. I don't know if this is quite correct. This is, this, this is a few years ago we did this as a, a TV company as, as doing a history of the UAE program that's going to come out shortly. This is the three-part uh, house, which has entrances here and here, and you see the buttress walls here. I don't think this is quite right, but this idea of wondering if these buildings are corbelled, we're starting to wonder if they're just the walls go up and then there might be some sort of temporary roof on the top uh, bit. But the, the, you have to, we have to explain these very large slabs that are almost like keystones. It may have been flatter in the, in the top uh, rather than quite so igloo-like, but it's still up for debate. Um, these seven mounds definitely contain, um, um, it's a village, it's a community. There seem to be a mixture of different buildings here. Uh, the interesting thing is that our recent excavations show that this Area C mound has a much more complicated building than this. This is like a the one unit that's the sort of three rooms. It's like one sort of uh, almost family house, whereas the Area C we're excavating now is, seems to be a lot more complicated with sort of rooms uh, bolted on and stuff. Um, we have published uh, um, some things uh, fairly recently some of these are open access. If you just Google, uh, you will find some of these um, articles online. You can download them about some of our recent work on Marawa and uh, uh, Dalma. We have a new Abu Dhabi culture app that if you haven't downloaded it to your iPhone or Android, definitely look for that, Abu Dhabi culture. There's information about some of our archaeological sites. Um, I'd like to finish just about Marawa today. Uh, 1994, when I stepped on the island, I was stunned by its environmental beauty and by the interesting archaeological sites. I didn't know that uh, 24 years later I would still be <laughs> there and working on the island. It's a very important area for dugongs and the Butina uh, site. It's a, that whole area is a Manan Biosphere Reserve. Sadly, um, dugongs sometimes uh, drown in this area by abandoned fishing nets and things, but the Environment Agency does a, a great job checking and monitoring this. The 
population of dugongs in the Gulf is the second largest in the world after northern Australia, and it's a very key resource to protect, um, as are the turtles, hawksbill turtles, uh, nest uh, in some of the islands in this area. It's an important area for seabirds. You start to realize why the prehistoric people came there and lived there between seven to 8,000 years ago. I would go there rather than being in Abu Dhabi at that time, because you have all these fabulous marine resources. You have stone for buildings. You have a water supply, clearly, that they are there for so long. And finally, um, this is a reminder of when I first stepped on the island in 1994. There's Abdul Al-Kabi here, Ahmed Al-Hajj here. And this is one of our great friends on the island, one of the local uh, inhabitants. And there's still a connection. I know it's I've taken you on a journey between seven and 8,000 years, but a lot of these activities of boating, fishing, a relationship with the fauna flora of the islands continue today. And this gentleman, Abdullah bin Qadas al-Ramaythi, and those of you who know uh, Western region, this is an al-Ramaythi kind of al-Ramaythad uh, territory area. And actually talking with some of these uh, old Emirati guys on the island, we learn a lot. And I learned a lot from talking with him and talking with the um, uh, late uh, Dawish al-Ramaythi, who we interviewed in the 1990s, about zones around the island where you can catch certain fish, where how to catch dugongs uh, in the historical times here. And one has to do, I, I, you know, I'm probably half a Ramaythi in, in my heart because I like to be, and I did fish for my PhD, so I have to claim, you know, partly that. But it's thanks to the support of uh, DCT and thanks to the support of the local people who welcome us there on the island. And I think you're going to enjoy uh, the new TV series when it comes out because there's filming taken during our excavation there, showing some of the material, showing some of the results. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.